0: Ranked one of America's top research universities, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee plays a vital role in shaping the future of Milwaukee and Wisconsin. UWM's diversity, academic excellence, and world-class research contribute to the region's economic development and quality of life. Meet the people behind the creativity and discoveries on UWM today. Here's the host, Tom Lujak, Vice-Chancellor of University Relations.
1: Every year, about a million people with serious mental health issues are arrested in this country, many of them on misdemeanor charges. Once they're taken into custody, research shows that individuals with serious mental illness are more likely to receive jail time than others arrested for the same crimes. On this edition of UWM Today, we're going to talk about the situation impacting not only the mentally ill, but members of our justice system who are looking for better ways of dealing with a problem. Our guests are Amy Watson, a professor in UWM's Helen Bader School of Social Welfare, and with her, Mary Madden, the Executive Director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Southeastern Wisconsin. Amy, many of our listeners may remember a terrible situation that occurred back in 2014 when a Milwaukee police officer shot and killed Dontre Hamilton, a mentally ill man found sleeping on a park bench downtown. That officer was never charged. He did lose his job, though. What was the impact of that incident uh, as we talk about the plight facing mentally ill?
2: Uh, The impact was really huge. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we've had um, throughout the country a number of similar incidents occur since that time as well. But really, it it had significant impacts on the the police department in terms of calls for for changes there. And I know that um, following that incident, there was a push to expand crisis intervention team training for officers there. Um, There was a lot of work looking at sort of some changes in policing practices. Let's talk a
1: little bit more about these crisis intervention training episodes that you referenced. Exactly what are we talking about?
2: So the crisis intervention team model is actually a broader model that includes a 40-hour training for officers, the idea being that you have officers that volunteer to take on the role Um, And so you have the officers that are more interested in responding to mental health crisis that go on and get some specialist training. Then when a mental health call is identified, they're the ones that are sent to that type of call. Um, And the training really um, covers signs and symptoms of mental illness, Um, different medications, there's panels of family members and people with lived experience of mental illness that come in and talk to officers. So they have that opportunity to get to know people with mental illness at a time that they're not in crisis. And then there's significant time spent on learning de-escalation skills and then practicing those skills in scenarios. Um, So it's really a 40-hour, pretty immersive experience. Um, And again, the, the, the model really is Um, kind of prioritize having officers that want to take on that role. So they go back out, they keep their regular patrol role. But when a mental health identified call comes in, then they move into their CIT specialist role to respond to a call. And these are the officers that are just better prepared to provide a safe and compassionate response. They also tend to be more familiar with the available resources to be able to take some steps to connect people to care.
1: Mary Madden, I want to bring you into the conversation. You've been an advocate for the rights of people with mental illness for a long time. What's the uh, Alliance on Mental Illness doing to work with people like Amy involved in this crisis intervention team training?
3: Sure. Thank you so much, Tom. Um, Well, NAMI uh, Waukesha and NAMI Greater Milwaukee uh, started doing crisis training in in southeast Wisconsin back in 2010, and of course, that's when um, we were two separate organizations organizations and uh, but we collaborated together to bring this very important training um, here to our area and so um, you know we've uh, we've been a part of CIT International, uh, received our certification to be facilitators uh, from them, and then of course we started partnering with police departments in our in our individual counties, as well as health and human services advocates. Uh, really, crisis intervention training is not just about training police officers, it's about a community program that involves uh, a number of different collaborators to ensure that the information that police officers are receiving and the, the de-escalation techniques are things that will work for them when they're uh, you know working on the job.
1: How receptive have police departments and and other law enforcement or or judicial system organizations been when you approach them and say, we think this crisis intervention training is is a good thing? Do you ever get resistance?
3: Yeah, so I'm, you know, not going to lie. I'm going to tell you that uh, it was a little painful back in in 2009 and 2010 when we were uh, trying to get some traction in this, and because uh, police departments were skeptical. Um, you know, the thought was, well, what are advocates going to come in here and tell how they're going to tell us how to do our jobs? That's why part of the reason is it's so important to have it be that partnership because they're absolutely right. How am I going to tell a police officer to do his job? And our our Law enforcement is charged with keeping our community safe, first and foremost. And CIT um, needs to take that into consideration, and it does take it into consideration that if, if there's a, a dangerousness that's posed, uh that maybe the that maybe CIT de-escalation uh may not work. But um, so I would, you know, over the years, though, and and fairly quickly, I think, you know, after our first couple of uh, uh, training programs, we had officers going back and telling other um colleagues and their and their uh supervisors quite frankly about how wonderful the training was and the feedback we would get is you know we get emails we get calls oh my gosh i used this two days after i completed the training thank you so much and so it really has gained the traction of um helping officers understand we're not trying to ask them to do things completely different than what they were taught what we're providing is some more tools in their tool belt to deal with a a population of people who really need some specialized, compassionate care.
1: Amy, uh, you've been researching this issue for many, many years, and I know you've been working with people around the country. Uh, Is the scenario that Mary just described pretty common when uh, you look at people in departments beyond Wisconsin?
2: Absolutely, um, and again, certainly there some agencies really aren't interested, or it takes you really have to work with them to kind of get them to see the value. Um, or sometimes you'll have some of some of the officers that get involved in some of the community collaborations that really push for it within their agency and have to convince their chief. Um, More and more, though, I think we're seeing um, a lot of agencies really seeing that this could be valuable. Um, One of the issues with that, though, is sometimes um, it's seen as sort of a check-the-box type of intervention. If if we just train officers, then we can fix this problem. And, And you're
1: off the hook then so to speak. Right, right.
2: right. And, and and really, you know, the, the model, the training is really an important piece, but the model really um, situates that training within these collaborations that can work together to make sure that if officers need to take somebody to get assessed, that there's some place that they can bring that person where will they'll be assessed. Um, collaborations also look and they, they identify gaps in the service system within that community and they can work together to address those and it's through, through those collaborations that I think that's really um, helps providing the training, you know, really be more, more effective and more successful in making sure that um, there are adequate responses for people when they're experiencing crisis in the community. So I've seen a lot of agencies talk about now, if we just you know, mandate training for everybody, we will completely resolve police shootings of people with mental illness. Um, and unfortunately it's a much more complicated issue than that
1: i want to come back to the dantre hamilton case because it was so shocking and, and so tragic at, at every level um mary you mentioned that uh, you began your work back in 2009 2010 dantre was killed in 2014. so four years after you began introducing the program here that terrible incident still happened what happened in the milwaukee police department after hamilton died
3: So after Hamilton died, um, what happened in the Milwaukee Police Department, and I'll preface this by saying that I was not working in the Milwaukee County um, system of services at that point. Um, I was just at NAMI Waukesha, but of course we're collaborators with NAMI Greater Milwaukee. So I do have some knowledge um, of that. But um, what happened was that um, basically... Every police officer in Milwaukee Police Department was mandated to go through uh, CIT training and um, after uh, Dontre's death. And so, um, you know, that was that was a bit controversial um, that uh, because CIT is is born on the idea that it would be a volunteer cadre of officers, officers that, you know, would like to, uh, attend the training who would volunteer to be part of the CIT, uh, team. Um, I do know that what they worked on with the Milwaukee police department was that everybody would take the training, um, because it has value for everybody to take the training and learn about mental illnesses. Um, but then, uh, People, uh, officers who wanted to be a part of the crisis intervention team would actually apply to be a part of that team. So there was that extra step that was uh, built into their process.
1: Amy, as I recall in the um, Hamilton uh, case, before uh, the officer who ended up shooting uh, uh, Dantre um, took that action, two other police officers actually. Saw Dontre. They were called to the park. There was there was a complaint, I think, from a fellow working at a coffee shop that there was someone sleeping on a bench outside, um, and they didn't bother Dontre. They 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 went on and let him be. But then this other episode unfolded. Um, what does crisis intervention training teach a person to do in that situation?
2: So, in terms of, and actually just a quick correction, is crisis intervention team training. Um, So, the model is crisis intervention team. But, you know, really CIT training would have an officer, um, you know, maintain some space um, and really be attentive to what might escalate a person or what might help them de-escalate and really approach with that in mind. Um, And certainly, you know, if if someone seems to need some space, making sure that 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 space is maintained as long as it's safe to do so. Uh, You know, it's really hard to comment on something that happened that I wasn't there at. I think part of the issue with having multiple officers that were involved is that there was some demand from a member of the public. I think there probably was some concern, um, you know, that that has could have to do with the public's misperception of somebody who may simply just be in a space that alarms other people. Um, so, you know, it was difficult, but a CIT training would really kind of train the officer to, to, to keep distance, use time, use space, and be very attentive to what things are, will actually help that person feel safer and de-escalate.
1: Uh, very good. If you're just joining us, you're listening to UWM today here on WWM. Good to have you with us this week. I'm Tom Lujak and joining us in our virtual studio still during this time of COVID are Amy Watson. She's a professor of social work at UWM's Helen Bader School of Social Welfare and Mary Madden. Mary is the executive director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness here in southeastern Wisconsin. Um, Amy, I'd like to come back to you and um, ask you a question that I suspect some of our listeners may be asking themselves. Um, we all, I think, have been out on the streets, uh, out in the community, where you come across someone uh, who clearly is having some challenges, uh, you know, interacting with others uh, or acting out, uh, perhaps uh, because of a, a mental illness or, or a condition that they're dealing with. Is there anything that, um you're you're doing with police officers in terms of crisis interve- intervention team training. Are there any? I don't want to use the word tricks, but 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 any advice uh, that that you could give to the average person to perhaps keep in the back of their mind if they're in a situation when the police aren't present.
2: Um, well, certainly. I mean, one of the first things is is oftentimes if somebody is out in public and behaving in a way that that alarms other people. I mean, sometimes someone who may be experiencing psychosis is hearing voices and dealing with stimuli that, you know, the passerby doesn't see. Um, that doesn't make them dangerous. Um, it just means that they're responding to something that, that other people aren't actually experiencing. So I think the first thing is is to to help people understand that, you know, most people with serious mental illness aren't actually dangerous. Um, and then next, um, certainly, you know, if someone does seem really symptomatic, don't crowd their space. Um, and, you know, if, if someone's concerned, really, probably the best thing is, you know, if, if they do engage with the person, just saying, asking them if they need something, um, or just allowing that person to be where they are um, in that space and, and not making them feel like, um, you know, they're crowded, or somebody is actually trying to move them along.
1: Mary, how about from your standpoint working with people who who do have um, challenges on the mental health front?
3: Sure, I would I would actually echo exactly what uh, Amy has said, and that is is that um, you know if you if you are a. Per, uh, approached by a person that is uh, experiencing some sort of stimuli that maybe you're not voices or something like that um you know just kind of creating that space but then also you know just kind of Moving along, um, as Amy said, uh, people uh, with mental illness—most of them—are not dangerous. In fact, people uh, affected by mental illness are much more likely to be victims of crimes than they are to be perpetrators. And so often, uh, what people are responding to is they're responding to their symptoms. Um, they're concerned about their symptoms. So um, another thing you know that that we do at NAMI is we provide education for the general public. And so um, if we think about the fact that people uh, become frightened when they don't understand, the general public does not understand what mental illness is. They don't understand what are signs and symptoms. Um, what they basically see about mental illness are um, are horrible tragedies that make the news. and um, Or
1: stereotypes that the media correct uses to portray what mental illness is like in a person.
3: Absolutely, um, movies, TV, all of that, and so that's if 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 we can realize and have some compassion for the fact that, you know, most of the public, that's how they understand mental illness. It's not difficult to understand how someone might be frightened by someone who might be responding to voices um, on a street corner, and um, but if if that person's not engaging with them, there's no reason uh, to call the police on that person. There's no reason to, um, you know, to engage them in anything. Um, you know, if they don't seem like they're in any other sort of distress.
1: I have some, a couple of very dear friends who, who suffer from mental illness. One of them has had a really, really long road with it. And, and he's one of my best friends. He's a great, great guy. Um, and, uh, and almost always he is right on, he is in a good place, but you know, there, there are opportunities for him to to slide off and and, and go back to to a, to a dark space is it possible for you to use some of the same training techniques that you're teaching the public or the police can do you talk to people who have mental health conditions about what they should remember if they are ever in a situation where they where they are having a challenging time and um, and do you can you teach them to behave in a way that doesn't result in this cascading of terrible events.
3: Well, it you know that's a, that's a complicated question um because um and it's you know honestly Tom it's really hard for us to predict um when somebody's going to have a mental health crisis. And so um somebody could be uh you know going along with their life, doing well in recovery, and then something could happen. Um, it could be something with their medications. It could be a traumatic life event that could, uh, you know, kind of put them in a tailspin that leads to a mental health crisis. So um, certainly at NAMI, we we have a recovery program that's called Peer to Peer. And what that program uh, does, that education class for an individual living with a mental health condition, is it helps them to understand their recovery, create a crisis plan, um, and to know the warning signs when when they aren't doing so well, and then to come up with a plan of action as to what what they should do when they start seeing this symptom in themselves or who their trusted loved one is who can say to them um i think you're not doing so well um and i have family members uh who live with mental illnesses and we have you know these sorts of uh plans for everybody if i know that something's off with one of my loved ones I don't skirt around the issue. We talk about it. If I think somebody's one of my loved ones is uh, at risk of suicide, I don't ask questions like, do you? are you going to hurt yourself? I say, are you thinking about taking your own life? And that's really, um, you know, as a society, what we need to get to. We need to help people understand that there are simple questions that you can ask people um, who you interface with, who you love, uh, to help them to maintain good recovery and get that early intervention uh, if they are becoming ill.
1: You know, it's really sad that so many of us are inhibited to have that conversation when you're dealing with mental illness and yet, if somebody in your family has diabetes, uh, and you could tell that their sugar levels, their insulin situation is not good, would you hold back and, and watch them fall over? Or, or someone with a heart condition? Would you say I really don't want to embarrass myself or them? Would I bring it up? Uh, you know, it's it's crazy, so to speak, that we're that we're not allowing uh, us to be honest with each other, right?
3: it It really is. It's um, you know, stigma is a long-standing issue um that uh, creates issues for uh, people wanting to seek treatment because, really, who and even for parents seeking treatment with their children, if they if they start to see some mental health issues, because who wants their, you know, Who wants their child to be labeled? Who wants people to think that they're, you know, quote unquote crazy because that's how uh, much of society still views people with mental illness? And, you know, we're talking about decades of um, undoing of stigma that we have to uh, take care of. And, you know, one of the things that um, perpetuates it is, um, you know, just thinking about what people can expect for reimbursement for trying to get treatment. Um, You know, if you had a heart attack and went into the hospital, uh, the insurance company wouldn't be calling your doctors the next day saying, get this guy out, get this guy out. When are you going to be done with this treatment? That is exactly what happens uh, when people are hospitalized for mental health conditions. And we talk to families all the time who say, well, how can I deal with this insurance company? Who's arguing with the doctors who want to keep my loved one in the hospital?
1: you know i have to apologize i didn't mean to be disrespectful in any way by using the term crazy but but you know it's not meant that way it's just part of the vernacular that that we use without trying to stigmatize anyone
3: Absolutely, Tom. And I, I will tell you that you know, if you're if you're using crazy to refer to a person, then it's a problem. But um, that's not the way that's not the way you used it. It's a situation. It's yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Amy, I'd like to talk about your research because this is so critical to finding really long-term solutions to these problems that are never going to go away mental illness like heart disease or cancer is always going to be a part of the human condition i suspect Uh, you're uh, currently involved i believe in a project with the national science foundation correct
2: yes Um, that project is looking specifically at misdemeanor charges uh, among people with serious mental illness Um, because when we look at data we we see that um, among like some of the low-level misdemeanor charges that we see, people with serious mental illness are significantly overrepresented. And of course, once they're arrested and brought into the system, um, all of the consequences of that involvement tend to be sort of amplified for people with serious mental illness. They stay longer. Um, they're more likely, if they're on community supervision, to have that revoked. Um, so what we're trying to look at is um, just what is the nature of the situations that are creating these misdemeanor charges and starting to explore where where are the opportunities that we can put interventions into place to p- deflect people out of justice system involvement as early as possible. And, and in a lot of ways, it really is having, having – options when a crisis occurs or, or when something occurs th- that don't involve police. So do we have other resources that can be sent out to uh, address somebody's needs in the moment and provide support and get people connected to care? Um, and the and problem is that even in, you know, Milwaukee County has some of those r- resources. There are mobile crisis teams, um, but capacity is very limited. Um, so really, um, it's very. They're not able to cover many of these situations that that um, result in these charges. so we're we're really trying to get that understanding. The project is actually, located in New York City, in Atlanta, Georgia, Philadelphia, and Chicago. Um, I'm a recent transplant to Milwaukee, so um, I was previously in Chicago for a very long time. Um, But we're just trying to get a better understanding and hopefully generate some discussion in the field around additional opportunities to divert people away from the system.
1: And you're also co-investigator on a NIH, National Institute of Mental Health Study. Uh, Is that different from the one you're doing with NSF?
2: Yeah, so I'm a co-investigator on a couple of projects. Um- One of them is looking at a a linkage system. So um, for people with serious mental illness that have had justice system involvement, um, they can agree to be part of a database that's secure so that if a police officer has contact with them and runs their name, what comes up is a flag that just says there's a mental health concern. Please call this number. And that number goes directly to a clinician who uh, has access to that person's, you know, information. So they're able to assist the officer in figuring out how to resolve that contact, but also then look at um, you know what needs to be done to re-engage that person in services. So, that's a randomized controlled trial that um, We're about three quarters through recruitment, so we're really looking at if that has an impact on keeping people engaged in services, but also reducing arrests.
1: You know, that that research is so critical because I, I suspect without good data, none of us will be able to make good decisions on how to deal with these situations, correct?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, and and I've, some of the work that I've done. Um, the project's not currently. We we completed the project is looking at um, police encounters with people with mental illness. Um, it was in Chicago, but we also looked at the impact of CIT. Um, but one of the things that really came through in that project is just um, we heard this from officers as well as from people with mental illness, is the need for additional services and improving service access. So people have something to access that isn't calling 911 and getting police um, when there is an issue, or if police do have contact with somebody, there is a service, something short of either arrest or the emergency room where they can connect people to care um, and where there'll actually be you know engagement and um, services that will help support that person in, in the community.
1: Mary, just a minute left or so. Are you hopeful that uh, studies like the ones Amy are involved in will move society to make the right choices in terms of where the investment should be made?
3: I absolutely am hopeful. And Tom, I've seen it. Um, in Waukesha County, uh, we've redesigned psych services. And Milwaukee County right now uh, are is redesigning their psychiatric crisis services uh, as well. And so uh, I am hopeful. I know we will do better. Um, and we have to do better.
1: Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you both for the great work that you're doing in this area. And we'd love to have you on again as we see what the results of that 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 research that Amy is working on um, leads to uh, hopefully positive change, uh, both here in Milwaukee and and far beyond. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Amy Watson, Professor of social work and Mary Madden, Executive Director of the National Alliance on Mental Illness here in southeastern Wisconsin, our guest on this edition of UWM today. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week at the same time. Take care, everybody. I'm Tom Lujak.
0: You've been listening to UWM Today with host Tom Lujak, the weekly program where you get to meet the people behind one of America's top research universities, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Playing a vital role in shaping the future of Milwaukee and Wisconsin, UWM's diversity, academic excellence, and world-class research contribute to the region's economic development and quality of life. Learn more at uwm.edu.